This episode is sponsored by this Snaked Mind companion app. Wait, this Snaked Mind has an app? Yes, we do. And I am so excited to tell you about it. This Naked Mind companion app is our brand new app where we've included all-in-one access to over 700 videos with answers to all your burning questions, our signature 30-day alcohol experiment, our incredible global community, and so much more, all in one convenient place. It's private, off social media, and free. This Naked Mind companion app is available in the App Store, on Google Play, and online at thisnakedmindapp.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. And I'm here with Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Welcome. Hi, Annie. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here. So why don't you kind of take us back to the beginning um, in your story and where did it all start for you with alcohol? Oh, my goodness. Um, I was thinking about this and I was listening to other people's stories and I'm like, gosh, mine is sort of weaved through my life from the beginning because um, I grew up with parents that drank and it was a problem um, just growing up. So it was like, it's like, it's been a constant theme in my life for my entire life. Um, And when I ended up with my own issue, it was like, I lost sight of all that I had experienced. That's how insidious alcohol is. But so I guess to start with, it, it's that a, my parents split up when I was five. And I remember my dad's drinking being a core reason. At least my mom always said that that was why she was leaving him was because of his drinking. So we were probably exposed to a lot more of that than kids. Like I wouldn't want my kids to know those details, mm-hmm. um, but they were doing the best they could at the time, I think. Um, and I also grew up knowing like I had this whole theme of it running in the family. Like I was taught that alcoholism ran in the family. So we needed to be careful because my uncle, my grandpa, my dad, everybody, everybody, those people, this is a funny thing I realized too. Everybody in my family drank, but it was certain people that had a problem. And, you know, growing up, my uncle drank so much. I remember him having a heart attack um, when I was at my grandmother's house and him having to be taken away and knowing that it had to do a lot with his drinking. And then later on, he ended up with pancreatitis. His doctor told him if he didn't stop drinking, that he would die. Wow. Um, and he still drank. Um, so I think that everybody was so concerned with his drinking because of those problems that my dad's drinking was kind of, you know, just not that big of a deal because he was what you would call what we call now a gray area drinker. He still Mm -hmm. went to work every day. Um, He was still functioning. He just, he had to have, he drank every day. He drank beer every day. Um, And I fought with him constantly about it. And my mom left when I was 13. So they split up when I was five and she actually, there was a big custody battle for many years back and forth. It was ugly. Um, My mother didn't play nice. So it was traumatic. And I I sometimes have this habit of dismissing that experience as if, you know, other people have it a lot worse. You know, there was Mm -hmm. abuse in other homes. And so I didn't have it that bad. At least I had one parent, you know, that was still around. So it, it just, I, now that I look back at it, that was really traumatic watching that whole scene play out. And I think it made me 
think I needed to grow up faster than I did, than I needed to. I, I thought I needed to take responsibility for my sister, who's five years younger than me. Um, she was, she was very young when my mother left. And so I, I sort of took it upon myself or somehow got the message that I needed to be the mother role for her. And then also that I needed to take care of my dad. So I had all this pressure, whether I put it on myself or I was taught that, I don't know. Um, but I, I definitely remember feeling like I had to be responsible for my dad and my sister and all of that. And all this pressure, I think now I think of trying to be perfect. But back to the drinking part, um, my dad, I fought with him all growing up to quit drinking. I remember hating it when he drank because it changed him. Like he was a different person. He was grumpy. He yelled a lot. Um, there was no physical violence or anything, but he was just irritable and on edge all the time. And I, I hated it. I knew better than to ask for anything before he had his first beer because he needed to, he needed to relax after his long and stressful day at work. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking that it was the job that he hated that was making him so miserable and thinking I need to make sure whatever career I pick, I love because I don't want to be miserable like my dad. And, you know, I'm kind of putting together now how that affected me because I was, I, and now I know that it was more the alcohol than what his job was, but that thinking that it was the job translated to me, like not being able to choose a path because I was terrified that if I chose the wrong path that I would end up miserable like he was. Um, but all of that to say that growing up watching that, knowing all of that, I wasn't really drinking young. I know I tried my first drink probably really young because it was just not a big deal for the kids to try beer. My dad would even buy me alcohol sometimes as a kid, just I think just to get me to shut up and leave him alone, right? But I remember always being like, I need to be careful. I don't wanna end up like my dad. I don't wanna have a problem. It runs in my family. And so I was like hyper vigilant to not turn out with a problem because I thought that that was so, like that was supposed to happen if I wasn't careful. So I didn't really drink that much all through like high school when kids were experimenting, I didn't get into it. I remember thinking I could take it or leave it for sure. I think I probably drank a handful of times, all that, all growing up. I remember the first time I got drunk like, I can't remember the first time I ever drank, but I remember the first time I got drunk. I think I was about 14 or 15, um, sharing one a 40 ounce bottle of Mickey's beer or something. And I don't even think we finished it. And a friend of mine shared it. I don't remember being hungover or anything like that. It was more of the, like, we had snuck out of the skating rink. <laughs> Dad, if you're watching this. <laughs> But, um, but we, we were being kids, we were breaking rules and I was a rule follower. I did not, I yeah. did not want to get in trouble. I was terrified of the word disappointment. Like I didn't get grounded or anything. It was just, if I disappointed my dad, that was enough. So I tried really, really hard to just do everything right. And I think I put a lot of pressure myself that way. Um, so it was the excitement of like breaking the rules that I remember more than the actual alcohol itself. Um, so just 
all through that time, it wasn't really a thing. And then in my 20s, like most people in their 20s, everybody starts drinking more. I remember before I was 21, having a fake ID so that I could go out with my friends and that being a thing. But at that time, it was more about the social aspect and just going out with people. I'm, I'm just out of high school. Now I'm an adult. So I'm going to do all these fun things. I don't have to answer to anyone, that kind of thing. It was more about that than it was the alcohol. Because um, I don't remember really being, I still remember being like cautious about what alcohol could lead to if I wasn't careful. But as I was getting more and more, you know, out of, you know, on my own, being a grown up and responsible for my own life and my dad, actually, I should go back a little bit. Um, my dad actually did finally quit drinking when I was 16. Um, it took like a, he didn't, I guess he, you would probably call it a rock bottom. He had a couple of DUIs, but back in the nineties, that was not a, as big of a deal as it is today. So that didn't deter him at all. It wasn't until when I was 16, um, something pretty traumatic happened and he ended up in the hospital with medical detox. So, mm -hmm. and it was, I caused that. Um, so he still to this day sort of attributes his sobriety to me, but I really think what it was is he found out if he didn't stop, he would lose us. He would lose custody. And he fought really hard for custody of my sister and I. And back then fathers didn't get custody. So it, it was a big deal to him. And I think he really knew that, you know, he didn't want us to end up with our mother. It, it would not have been good for us. So that was enough for him to, he never drank again. He didn't go to AA. He didn't, he didn't do anything else after he got out of that medical detox. I think it was a couple of days. He stopped altogether. So, and that was another layer to me not wanting to drink because I would feel so guilty doing that after my I fought with my dad so hard for him to get sober then to go around the turn around and start drinking like that myself so I, I felt like I needed to I didn't feel like it was important at the time um, but you know in the 20 in my 20s as I'm going out and it's becoming more and more part of the party scene and I was really trying to find myself I didn't know I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I, like I said, I was trying to figure out like what career I could choose that I would be happy in. And I remember that being a big thing in my twenties. Like I, in college, I could not, I changed majors. I don't know how many times I started out, I think in business, I was in journalism. And then I, um, I changed majors so many times. Then I dropped out for a little while just because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I, it took me 11 years to graduate college because I couldn't make up my mind because I was terrified of choosing something that I wouldn't love and then therefore be miserable. So in my twenties, I'm trying to figure out who I am and, you know, realize now I was trying so hard to be what I thought everyone else wanted me to be. I never really stopped to think about what I wanted because I was more concerned about, you know, if, you know, my family would be proud of me, if my friends would accept me. And I, you know, th that was my focus. I, I had that's I think that's why I was so lost. And in that time going out and finding, you know, a crowd of people that accepted me, 
and it all involved drinking. So I still don't remember it being like, because I could take days off, like there were days that I didn't go out and I didn't think about drinking. It didn't seem like a problem to me though. Looking back at it now, I can see how, how that was like leading up to where I ended up being. And it's that whole thing where like alcohol is so ingrained in everything that we do. It was so normalized. Like that's just what you do when you go out. You don't go out and not drink. The first thing you had to do was get a drink so you could relax, right? That was that was what we just did. And, you know, there were several nights where I drank way too much and several things that I did that I regret. Um, some nights that I don't really remember. Um, a lot of those nights, actually. Um, but it was all just part of partying. And I experimented with drugs, too, at that time. And all of this, I think, was just me trying to figure out who I was. But at some point, after a few years of that, I remember sitting in a Taco Bell parking lot in my friend's car in like three or four in the morning and being like, what the hell am I doing with my life? Like, I felt like such a loser. I'm like, I'm not doing anything. Like I had a, I had a couple of jobs. I was sort of going to school part-time. But that was my life, the partying and the drinking, staying up late, playing around with drugs and being around people that really didn't know who I was. And I'm like, it, it was like something just sort of hit me in that moment. And I'm like, this is not where I want to go. This is not the road that I want to go down. So I stopped going out after that night. I just, I stopped going out altogether. I stopped hanging out with those people. Um, I had moved back in with my dad at that point. I remember it was kind of a big deal because my sister and I were five years apart and we shared a room until I was 18. So it was once he finally bought a house and this was also attributed to not drinking anymore. Um, I had my own room. So it was like, I finally had my own space. So um, when I was able to go back to my dad's house and I had somewhere to stay um, and I kind of just regrouped um, but I still remember feeling really lost. Like I, I didn't know who I was or where I was going or what I wanted. Um, so I was kind of just stumbling around for a while. And I met my fiance. We've been together now 16 years. Um, and right about the same time, I started a new job. And he, there was drinking in that relationship, just like you know, it's so, like I said, it's so in, in everything that we do at parties and everything, but it was not daily. So, you know, I did, I never, I didn't ever drink like alone at that point. It was only out socializing and things like that. And he was a bigger binge drinker. So he liked to go party a lot and he would drink a lot when he did go out. But by the time I, we were, I think we were together for three years and I got pregnant with my daughter and that sort of changed everything for both of us. Um, our relationship was really rocky up to that point, but um, I think when we realized that we were having a, a baby, we were like, we need to grow up, you know, and, and we realized it's what we wanted. It wasn't like we weren't um, trying not to get pregnant, but we weren't trying to get pregnant. So it was just kind of like 
it happened, but we were glad that it did because we realized that we did want a family. We did want to start a family together. So he stopped, he stopped drinking, stopped going out like very rarely would he go out after that. And um, I don't remember, I don't remember drinking that much at that point, but I do remember being really bummed out that I couldn't drink for nine months when I was pregnant. And I remember asking my doctor, like, am I not going to be able to have wine like at all? Like, cause there was so, and I remember looking up all the information, like, cause the, the messaging was changing, like, oh, it's okay if you have a drink every now and then, because I grew up, you know, you're not supposed to do that when you're pregnant because it's very dangerous. But then there's all these loopholes, especially when the messaging around alcohol, that's so important. So people, that confirmation bias thing, like I'm looking for that approval to go ahead and have a glass of wine every now and then. And my doctor told me that the stress it was better to have go ahead and have a glass of wine every now and then, as opposed to the stress of, you know, and I had anxiety at the time as well. So, um, and of course I took that as permission and I'm not proud of that now. I didn't drink a lot, but God, if I could go back now, there's no way I would make that choice um, mm -hmm. now. Um, but it's still, it wasn't, uh, it was, I remember it being a thing, but I got through it fine. I don't remember, because um, again, I wasn't drinking every day at that point, um, but it was enough of a, it was important enough that I was upset about being not able to drink the whole pump and dump thing that I know a lot of people have talked about agonizing over whether or not that they, you know, when they could do it, how much they could drink, you know, how much did they have, you know, saved up for the baby, all of these things. I remember that being a thing. And in yeah. this whole time, all of these stories I'm telling you, there's like a part of me that's watching it all happen, kind of standing there going, like, like trying to tell me to watch for these danger signs and I wasn't seeing them or I was dismissing them, I would say, um, because, you know, for alcohol to be that important, I, I don't know how I didn't see that in the moment. And I remember having the thoughts and then dismissing them. Um, because of what I knew and around the time that I, so I found out I was pregnant with my son. So I had another child about almost four years after my daughter was born. And I had been working at a, a in account in a finance in a nonprofit for a while. That job was not what I wanted. It was just, I needed, I was hoping to move into a different position, but it, I just kind of grew into the position that I was in. It was getting more stressful. And now I'm adding children to the mix. And so the stress was mounting. And I think it was then that my drinking started becoming more regular. It wasn't just socially. That was when I think I started drinking just at home to relax. Um, it still wasn't every day at that point. And I decided to go back to school <laughs> in the middle of all this. I think because I wasn't really happy, I didn't want to stay in that job. I really wanted to figure out what I wanted to do. And the job that I was in was helping families at risk. And I remember my, my desire when I was young, after watching my dad, I wanted to help people with addictions. So I went back to school and I studied uh, substance abuse treatment. I minored in it with the intent to go on and become a substance abuse counselor. And so 
I had all of that knowledge that, you know, what alcohol and other drugs did, but I, you know, I remember just kind of, oh, alcohol is not, I don't have to worry about that because I have all this knowledge. Like, I know what happened to my dad. I, and now I'm studying this stuff. I know how it works. I will be fine. I will be able to catch it before it becomes a problem. That was, that was the, the justification I think I was giving myself, or maybe it was just me dismissing the signs that I think I know I was seeing because I could see it sort of progressing um, as I got older, as stress mounted. Um, and then my son was born and I was pregnant while I was doing my internship at this um, treatment facility for women. And I remember just really trying to understand why all these women that were there, many of them had had their children taken away from them um, because of drugs or alcohol. And I could see the pain in, the, in their faces. And I knew that they loved their children and that these substances just had this grip on them. And I just remember not being able to really understand it because I had my daughter and I was about to have my son and they meant everything to me. Mm. And my mother left me. So I know what that felt like. And for me to imagine leaving my children, even in that way, I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it. Even though I knew all this stuff about addiction, I didn't have my own experience to draw from. So, and I just felt so bad for these women, but I felt like I couldn't help like I didn't, cause I couldn't understand. And I could see that the success rates in those facilities were just not good. Mm -hmm. So many of the women would relapse and I'd never see them again. And I just, I know myself and I knew if I pursued that, I didn't think I would be strong enough to see the, them not succeed. And I know that I would, I would, not be able to not take responsibility for maybe I didn't do my job well enough or whatever it was. But I remember thinking whatever we're doing to try to help them isn't working. Like I, I just had that sense of, mm -hmm. I don't know what the answer is. I really didn't know what, I, what it wasn't arrogance or anything like that. I just knew that what we were doing, what I was being taught, what I was, I was in a lot of the group therapy meetings. And I mean, the therapist was really good, but it just wasn't working. And I, I really wanted to understand why, but I just ultimately decided I couldn't pursue that because I felt helpless. And I didn't think that I could handle that disappointment. So I went back to, I graduated and I went back just to my, to my job and put everything into that and just hoped that it would lead to something. But it just kept getting more and more stressful. And between having my two kids, my weight fluctuated a lot. And so I was always sort of struggling with my weight from high school on. And I realized, I realized now that I was using food to cope with a lot of the stress and the emotions. And I ended up getting gastric bypass surgery because I was so sick of the weight loss yo-yo. I mean, I was every diet you could think of. I tried, I would lose weight. I would gain it back then some, and I worked really hard. I exercised a lot. I tried really hard to watch what I was eating, but it, uh, the idea of 
it, it was all about diets back then. It was, it wasn't lifestyle changes. I think somewhere inside me, I knew that it had to be a lifestyle thing, but I couldn't imagine giving up, you know, certain foods and things like that. So I, after having enough of that roller coaster, I just decided to go ahead and do the, I found out I was eligible. So I had gastric bypass surgery and I lost a hundred pounds, which was great for a while. <laughs> but I remember them telling me when they were screening me for the surgery that I, that you cannot drink alcohol. They mm. warned you not to, they said, because a lot of people trade one addiction for another. And I remember, I remember thinking to myself, I remember the like warning lights going off in my head, but again, dismissing them and saying, oh no, you know, I know too much. I'll be okay. And I remember thinking, there's no way I'm giving up my wine. Um, and at that point I wasn't even drinking daily. Um, but I remember it was important enough that I was like, not happening. And I, it didn't like, I was like, not fully aware of the danger I was headed into, but part of me sort of knew it's, it's so hard to describe that place I was in because I like keep just the only way I can describe it is like watching myself outside of myself, but not being yeah. able to, to tell me to stop. So after that, because my pattern would be to come home and I wouldn't eat all day because I would be busy. I would be stressed. And then I would come home and then I would binge on junk while I'm making dinner. So I'm like, you know, I was eating so much while I was making dinner. Then I would make a big dinner and then I would go to bed. So that was probably why I gained so much weight. Then when I lost all the weight and I couldn't eat like that anymore, because when they do that surgery, you, your stomach is like a quarter of the size, I think of what it was before. So you, I literally couldn't eat like that anymore. I actually get sick if I have too much sugar or too much fat. So it will make me physically ill. And I tested it a few times. It's not pleasant. It was, I was miserable. So it was enough to keep me from crossing those lines with food, but then I needed to do something with the emotions and the stress and everything. And I turned to alcohol naturally. It's amazing how common that is. Have you done any research on um, how frequently that happens? I have not. I want to though, because I remember, well, I'm thinking about it now and I'm like, they know that it was important enough to mention it, but they didn't really do a good job of making sure that people, because I, I think they knew, I think they know that they tell people that. And it's just like when you go to the doctor and you lie about how much you actually drink. I think they, they knew and they would tell you not to drink and, oh yeah, 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 we won't drink. But then they don't really give you the real hard facts about it. And, you know, they give, they make you do a mental health screening, but I know how to get through those. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I know how to answer the questions so that I don't raise any red flags because in that moment all I wanted was this surgery I wanted to lose this weight and I thought that I was fine I thought I could manage things but again I I knew I had that voice saying you know maybe you need to be careful maybe this is something bigger and you know of course all this work I've done I, I can see the, the patterns from early on to now that I would use, well, not now, I've got healthy coping mechanisms now, but 
up and through when I stopped drinking, I was, I had all of this stuff that I was dealing with that I was trying to stuff down. It's like the analogy you use with the beach ball that you're trying to stuff underwater. And I was trying to stuff all of that down for so many years and, and it worked, but it didn't. It worked because on the outside, everybody thought I had it together. Everybody thought that I was happy. Everybody thought that I was managing fine. I was diagnosed with depression as a teen. Um, but I remember trying to explain to my dad, you know, what I was going through and he just, he didn't understand it. He kind of, he kind of dismissed, he got therapy for me. I know I tried therapy and, and medication and things like that, but, um, I didn't feel like anyone understood me or what I was going through. And I felt different and I felt like there was always something wrong with me. So I didn't really share fully what was going on with me. And um, the noise in my head, I think, is one of the main things that drove me to the drinking and stress for sure. That's how that was like the door, the gateway, I guess, because the messaging with the mommy wine culture, and this is how you relax what I was what was modeled for me, alcohol helped my dad relax. That's what I saw you know, everywhere I looked, that was the messaging that alcohol will help you relax. So it's, that was sort of the gateway that led to me drinking more regularly and let my guard down. Because remember I said, when I was younger, I was very vigilant. Like I was aware of the potential for danger for me because I was, you know, predisposed to it. But with all the messaging and the mounting stress in my life, I let my guard down and, and, and I started to use that coping mechanism like everyone else and you know I'm looking around at everyone else and I'm justifying what I'm doing because everyone else is doing it and um, meanwhile I mean I can remember I think I don't know how long I, I think it was within a year after my surgery that I started drinking every day and eventually it got up to by the time I finally quit, I was up to more than two bottles of wine a day. I think I, I even switched to the box wine so I didn't have to see how much I was drinking. Mm, yep. The sound of all the bottles in the recycling bin, I was embarrassed every time I dumped it out because I was afraid my neighbors would hear the noise and uh, just all those little things where I'm like, it's a constant reminder of, the, again, that part of me that's like, are you going to stop now? Or are you, and I'm just like, dismissing it and looking around at well this person drinks you know a lot too and they're doing okay and all of the things that we do to try to make ourselves feel better even though deep down I really knew it was a problem and I was actually terrified of it because I remember looking into because so with my background I knew what was available AA and treatment and those were not options for me. I was like, I can't, I can't go. And it, after everything that I went through with my dad, all the knowledge that I had, for me, it was like another layer of shame to say, now I have a problem. Mm -hmm. Like I, and this is what I say all the time. I was supposed to know better. Mm -hmm. And that's just not how alcohol works. And that's not what we're taught. And 
because I thought that I was supposed to know better, there was so much shame that I just, I could not bring myself to, to those extremes. I thought I said to myself, there has to be another way. I remember learning about the harm reduction and I, I was Googling that, trying to figure out how I was going to get myself out of this. At the same time, being terrified of actually giving up alcohol. And that's like something I don't think was ever talked about either. About, you know, it's like when you have a problem, you just quit. Like, why would you, you know what I mean? And it, they don't talk about how scary it is to not only that, when people, we talk about all the time, how when you, you have to justify not drinking. So when people think of someone who doesn't drink, they automatically assume they're miserable. And that's definitely what I thought. I thought of, you know, all the people that didn't drink and how miserable they must be with their lives. And they didn't, you know, I didn't want that for my life. I was trying to avoid the misery. I was trying to find something that made me happy. And at the worst part of it, I thought alcohol was one of the things that was making me happy. Um, so it was, it was that, you know, push and pull the fear of giving it up, but knowing I needed to give it up. And I think I spent a, a good year just in that contemplation phase, um, which I think is shorter than a lot of people go through because I, I like, I had that voice in the back of my head, it was starting to get louder, telling me that I needed to do something about this soon. And I think that's when it actually got worse. That it's that thing you talk about where people that are asleep and then they're awake, but incapable. And I was in that spot for a long time. Like I, I knew that there was a problem. I knew I needed to change it, but I didn't know how. Yeah. And everything that I was using that I had learned all the knowledge that I thought I had wasn't working and that to me translated to failure and worthlessness which I think I have always struggled with um feeling worthy and I I always um like I was saying earlier about trying to be who I thought other people wanted me to be because I, I think I was too afraid to look inside myself and my, my, my inner, my self-talk was all negative. It was all, you know, you're not good enough. You know, who you are at the core is broken. And, and I hate to, I don't, I, I always resist blaming on my mother leaving but the, the fact is, when a parent leaves a child, that leaves a mark. Mm -hmm. And there's no point in denying that, you know, I felt like I wasn't good enough. If I was good enough, if I did the right thing, she would have stayed. It didn't help that she blamed me for a lot of the stuff. So now I know she was had her own mental health issues that she was struggling with. But as a child, I just felt like my own mother couldn't stick around. I'm, I must be worthless. So, and that's why I was always trying to be the good kid. I was always trying to do the right thing. I was always trying to help my dad. I was a perfectionist. I, I tried really, really hard in school to get good grades. I pushed myself really, really hard 
just because I was trying to make myself feel worthy. And now when I'm going through all of this and feeling even more worthless and like a failure, that there were many nights when I wished that I wouldn't wake up. Mm. I definitely had suicidal thoughts. I The only thing that kept me back is probably the experience with my mom and knowing that that would hurt my kids and, and my dad. I knew it would hurt my dad. And again, I, I have this thing of taking responsibility for other people's feelings throughout my whole life. So I knew that even though I thought that was going to give me relief, I knew that it would cause them pain and I, and I couldn't do that. So that was the only thing that kept me from, from the brink, I guess. Mm-hmm. And someone asked me once, not that long ago, what kept me from going that direction. And instead I you know, just kept trying and it, it really was, thankfully it was my family. And I think that that part of me that was still there, that was fighting for me. Sorry. Oh, that's all right. Take your time. I just, I think there was always this part of me that really knew that I was worthy. But because I was always looking for validation outside of myself, I dismissed that voice. Mm-hmm. And she got really quiet for a long time. And I feel like I needed to listen to something. So I grabbed onto that voice and thankfully ended up finding you (laughs) because then I had hope that that voice that was speaking to me was like, here's another way. You have to keep trying. So it's still, I wish I could say that that was the end. Um, I read both of your books, I think twice. I listened to them, which was really good because It was like you were speaking to me. So, and I really related to so much of your story. And I spent a lot of time listening to other Quitlet and everything at the same time, just trying to really fill my brain with hope that there was another way out of this, but also at the same time, not believing that it was possible. Um, But I kept holding on to that last shred of hope and I think I got your book I want to say in 2019 and I did my first live alcohol experiment in May of 2019 and at up until that point after I'd started like after the surgery when I started drinking daily I had not gone one day without drinking um, until that May alcohol experiment so I want to say a good four years and it was scary, but I was excited because I really like, I was listening to you. I was listening to these other people talk about how they could get free. And I was like, I was, I had so much hope. I remember going into live alcohol experiment. I remember Simon, (laughs) I remember Simon being like, so like excited in his energy. And I was like feeding off of his energy. I was like, yes, I want to feel like that again. I want to like, it's not as scary as I imagined, like being sober can be really good. And I was in that pink cloud that first time. And then 
the bubble burst um, Mother's Day weekend. And I remember like, it was that physical reaction, like my subconscious throwing a fit to the point it gave me an anxiety attack, like a really bad anxiety attack. Because, and I, I wasn't thinking about drinking, I was leaving work. And I remember getting in my car and just my chest was like squeezing, like it was someone was sitting on my chest. My heart was racing. My skin was clammy and hot. And I was like, I felt like I was going to die, but I knew it was an anxiety attack. I didn't know where it was coming from, but I, I wanted relief. And so I went to the store and got wine and I spent that entire weekend in a drunken haze. And then I was beating myself up because here it's mother's day. And this is how I'm behaving. This is like passed out on the couch the whole weekend. And I was feeding the, the negative self-talk and all of that shame and guilt with alcohol. I was not listening to the, to give yourself grace. Like I didn't think I was worthy of that grace. So I did that for, I think I did two more alcohol experiments after that. I made it 50% of May alcohol free, but that, that wasn't good enough for me. So I did not see it as a positive at the time. And I was remember I was just mad at myself. And the next month I went back to daily drinking and it got worse. Actually, after that, I was drinking more. Work was getting more stressful. I was drinking more and I was trying. It's and it's that it's that space where you're like, you want it so bad and you feel like you can get it, but then I, I just feel like I didn't think that I deserved it. And I was afraid of failure too. I was afraid that I wasn't, if this didn't work, what what was I gonna do? So when I went through the first experiment and it wasn't as what my expectations were going to be, I thought, I don't know what else there is. And that terrified me, but I kept trying and it was December 30th of 2019 that I had my last drink. And I just, I had left my job. Um, and I thought at the time that it was the job that was just too much. I, I, but I knew I had to take that out of the equation. I just had enough, but I'm sure now looking back, the alcohol was not helping me. It was making me make things like it was making my brain make things harder than they needed to be. And, and if I could go back now, I'm sure I could handle what was happening in that job better, but I didn't, I didn't have the tools at the time. So but it ended up being the good thing because I knew if I stayed, I didn't have a job lined up. I've never left a job without another job lined up. So I was terrified. I, I figured I've, I'll figure it out. Um, but I knew that if I didn't find, if I didn't get a handle on my drinking, I was afraid of what would happen if I was at home all the time. And if I would end up just drinking every, all day long and where that could lead. And that scared me. And I told myself I would get through the, the holidays and, and then, then I would stop. But I woke up at like three in the morning, disgusted with myself on December 30th. And I, and I just remember thinking, I don't, why do I need to wait? I'm done with this. I was, I was so ashamed, but also just done. Mm -hmm. I hadn't reached the point where I felt like I was worthy. I just, I said, I can't keep doing this anymore. And I committed to doing the January 2020 live alcohol experiment this time. I, I don't really know what was different this time. I, I started doing the work. 
that's for sure. I actually definitely, I remember the other times that I was doing the alcohol experiments, I wasn't really engaging. I was sort of on the sidelines watching things happen, but I wasn't actually putting the act technique into um, action in my own life. I wasn't doing a lot of the journaling. I wasn't, and I even still have some of my journal entries from when I um, did that one. I have some of them from all of them, but I noticed a pattern I would drop off after a couple of days, but this time I committed and I engaged in the group. I started, I was more motivated and I was like being vulnerable and, and then also helping other people. So helping other people get through this while I was getting through this was sort of like motivation for me to keep going. So I don't know what it was. I think it was all of those things that made that experiment easier for me and then I applied for the I did the intensive program in February I remember thinking oh I did a whole 30 days I don't I probably don't need this because I had never done the whole 30 days before but I told myself I need to do it I just need to keep the momentum going I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't stay engaged and I'm really grateful that I did because um I I think that whole period of time allowed me to make transformations in my life that I don't think I could have done if I hadn't gone through this whole journey. And it, when I started out, I thought it was just alcohol. I was just trying to get rid of that problem. But I think I heard you talking about this other day. The, I think it was yesterday, actually, about going up the river to figure out what caused you to go down to begin with. Yeah. And so I think that I, I, a lot of people might regret, you know, having ended up in this situation, but for me, it's a, a blessing because I have been struggling my whole life with these things and I didn't have any answers and it wasn't going anywhere. If I hadn't had to get through the alcohol thing, I wouldn't have uncovered the things that were keeping me stuck in my life all along. So for that, I'm, I'm really grateful. Yeah. That's so beautiful, Jenny. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm um, sorry if that was. <laughs> no, that's great. It's amazing. So, um, and, and you're doing some cool stuff now. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. I, so I remember when I was doing the intensive thinking, I really wanted to be a, this naked mind coach because I loved all the coaches and I remembered that, you know, I really wanted to help people with addiction. And the reason I stopped is because I didn't know how, and now I knew how to help people. So, um, yeah, I was, I, I, I think I knew early on that I wanted to become a coach and I just I actually followed through with something. So I was really proud and to have some direction. Like I finally knew what I wanted to do and I knew that I felt like I could do it. So I got certified in December of last year. And um, so I'm really excited about that. And I started my own business and I have, uh, have one client and I have a small group coaching program that we're, that I'm doing with another coach that's going really well. So I'm still just like getting my legs as far as being a entrepreneur and a coach, but um, I'm learning so much just in the process that I then hope to share with other people. That's amazing. That's just so great. 
So, wow, I love all of that. Um, thank you so much for telling the story and with so much great detail and, you know, all of the things and especially your realizations about finding the gratitude for the whole thing, which I think is such an amazing place to eventually come to. It takes a long time and a lot of work and a lot of insight and a lot of self-reflection to do that, but being able to come to it, I think is, is so great. Um, I also wanted to comment on something you said towards the beginning, and then you talked a, a little bit about again, like you said, um, that for so long you dismissed your mom leaving because it wasn't as bad as other people, uh, you know, things that you had heard. And I think that is one of the beliefs that keeps so many of us stuck, not healing and not allowing ourselves to heal and not allowing ourselves to like recognize the pain that we're in because of trauma is because we think, oh, well, it wasn't as bad as that. I've heard this horror story or that horror story and I had it better. So who am I? But the reality is like the human psyche, it, it's, it's relative, right? Like what, if, if you have, let's say you have a stable life and then something happens and it's all of a sudden unstable, like that is wildly traumatic. Uh, say you have a super unstable life and it gets progressively worse, that's actually less traumatic in some ways than that instant of stability to instability. Even if like you are in a, a way worse situation, but you've kind of acclimated to it. And I'm not to like um, say that anything is good, but just that how the brain works, we really do ourselves a collective disservice by dismissing the things that have been difficult for us because it wasn't that bad. And I think we really prevent ourselves from like getting to know ourselves and awakening our own worthiness and healing and all of these things. And I mean, I can't tell you how I, I just was in the, so the same boat, like, oh, well, everything was great because it wasn't like them or everything was great. Cause we always had food on the table or everything was great because, you know, you hear these stories and like, just our unwillingness to, um, and especially as kids with parents, like our unwillingness to even look at, at parents might be the source of some of it. And that's really hard for just a human to look at their parent as possibly the source of any of it. And uh, yeah, it's not to ever get into a place of blame because I think that's wildly unproductive, but just to get into a place of acceptance and honesty and acknowledgement that what we went through you cannot compare pain. You cannot like, it just is such a false idea, but it exists for all of us. Right. Yeah. And it's, and it's, I mean, now I understand that trauma is relative. Like it is. And I, I think I really got a lot out of, um, is it Dr. Gabor Mate's book, mm -hmm. the, um, a realm of hungry ghosts where he talks about, you know, so much of addiction is attributed to trauma and it doesn't matter what that it's how the person perceives the trauma and that manifests in so many different ways and yes dismissing it all those years i can i can see why it led to what it did it it was i wasn't facing the pain i wasn't facing i wasn't allowing myself to get any sort of like comfort I I didn't know how to comfort myself and I I didn't feel like I should be asking other people because like 
I, it wasn't as bad as other people had it. So I didn't feel like I should talk about it. And so instead I just avoided it altogether. And I think a lot of people do that. And I, I hope that, I mean, and I think that it doesn't help that society kind of teaches us to just, especially in my generation is to tough it up, toughen up and, you know, suck it up and, you know, keep on moving, like no excuses, you know? And so I grew up with a little bit of that too. Like we didn't really, I, I remember my grandma wasn't really big on sharing emotions. She helped raise me. Um, so I just remember feeling like I had to be strong because my dad had enough to deal with. So that message just sort of like, okay. And then, then comparing to other people that I, I mean, I grew up poor, so I saw other kids that had things a lot worse than me. So that's, I mean, I wish, and, and now I look back and I'm like, if it were my kids or any kids that my, my kids know, mm-hmm. I would feel so awful for them. So why don't I deserve that same compassion? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so, that's so true. Wow. Well, Jenny, let me ask you the question that I always end these with, which is, you know, if you were going to go in time back in time to, um, when you were really struggling with alcohol and, and when you felt, um, and, you know, it will be fascinating to do that, that research. I know that I have seen statistics about gastric bypass and alcohol, like being correlated. And I think part of it is you switch coping mechanisms, but part of it is also just the physiology of being unable to absorb alcohol in the same way that you once did. So it's, it's a fascinating thing. Anecdotally, I have heard a similar story to that from just countless people. So, but if you were going to go back and, you know, that situation of, of feeling like you should know better of being, you know, looking around and not even feeling like worthy of asking for help because like, this couldn't be happening to me. I was the one on the other side of this equation the whole time. Uh, and you were going to talk to her a little bit about what life is like now. What would you say? Oh my God. There's so many things that I would want to say to myself because I, I'm a different person now than I was. I didn't know who I was. I think this has all allowed me to actually be introduced to the real me that I was, that I didn't, that didn't think was good enough. And now I'm starting to feel worthy. So I I would start by telling myself, telling her that she's worthy, that she doesn't have to try so hard, um, that the only relationship or opinion that really matters is your own. And that just all of the, the self-doubt and negative self-talk and the, and the things that, oh, that's one thing I did wanna say. I don't think I realized at the time that my thoughts weren't necessarily mine. Mm-hmm. And so I was listening to this constant barrage of negativity in my brain, thinking that that must be true because it's mine, it's my voice. Mm -hmm. And so I would tell myself not to listen to that voice, that it, that, that I have a choice that the, the thoughts that are coming in my head are just thoughts and they're not true. And I don't think I, nobody ever told me that. Uh, I never, I didn't believe it. I thought, you know, if I keep thinking this, it must be true. So I would, I think that was one thing that really, really got in my way 
it, believing all the thoughts that were happening in my head, because if I was able to, like I am now, like the thoughts come up and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. And I don't think I would have learned that without this experience with alcohol and using the act technique to get the awareness of those thoughts and where they're coming from, because it was on autopilot for so long that I couldn't even see, like it was just on a constant loop in the back of my brain and bringing that awareness to those thoughts, the thoughts that led me to think I needed to drink and to think that alcohol was helping me and the thoughts that you know, still are there from so long ago that I can, I can hear them and just say, no, not today. Mm -hmm. And I can let them go because now I have the awareness and I have the tools to change those thoughts. And so I went from a person who was very negative and doubting myself all the time and thinking that alcohol was the solution to my problems to now I'm a positive thinker. I don't have to try to be a positive thinker. It's just now that's becoming my default. And, and I can acknowledge the old thoughts and I can let them go. And I don't need alcohol to, I don't want alcohol. Like it's like you say, I can drink whenever I want to, but I've gained so much since not drink, since giving up alcohol, that there's no way that I would give that up. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. That's just awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story and sharing all of the vulnerable details. I mean, that's what's so important, so life-changing for people who hear it. So uh, where can people find you if they're interested in your coaching? Um, well, my website is yoursoberrevolution.com. Um, and I, I know it's kind of a play on words, so you can spell it either way and you'll get to my site. So um, yeah, you can find me there and you can find me on Facebook. I think it's Your Sober Revolution Coach. Awesome. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Please don't forget to check out This Naked Mind companion app in the App Store on Google Play or online at thisnakedmindapp.com. More than 700 Q&A videos, the alcohol experiment, our global community, and so much more. Private, off social media, and free. All in one place and conveniently tucked right in your back pocket. I really hope to see you there. Thisnakedmindapp.com. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.